Open your Bibles, Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is where we're going to be this morning, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. There is a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can have that one. Or if you don't, let me rephrase that. If you don't have a Bible, you can have that one. Just take it with you. If you don't have your Bible this morning, maybe don't take it. Just bring your Bible next time. It's okay. Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is where we're going to be. Well, we finally made it. We're at the end. It's the end end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the last week. I can't promise this will be the last sermon I ever preach from Matthew, but it will be the last for a while. So today we're going to finish up this review that we embarked on about four weeks ago. And t- next week we begin a study of the book of Philippians. So we'll be here next week going through the book of Philippians. But this week we're going to finish Matthew as we're attempting to apply the book of Matthew as a whole to our individual lives, but also corporately to our lives as a church body. Four weeks ago, we saw that the, uh, a key theme in the book of Matthew is what the life of a Christian should actually look like. The Spirit should be in us and should be producing in us a growing sense of holiness. And we saw that holiness, it was defined by the Sermon on the Mount, uh, poverty of spirit meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and so on. And then three weeks ago, we saw that this is impossible. It's impossible to do unless a person is truly born again, unless a person is truly converted. That is, that the Holy Spirit has come in to take up residence inside a person, and unless that happens, the person is powerless to affect any real change toward holiness. So Christianity is not a just-try-harder religion. At its base, it is a you-must-be-born-again religion. And unless you are born again, your efforts towards holiness are null and void. They're fruitless. The Spirit of God must be in you in order to produce the fruit of righteousness. And He does that on your behalf. Then two weeks ago, we saw that if if the room of of a church is filled with born-again Christians, in other words, the Spirit is indwelled in each of the members of the body, then together we should be expected that in our lives are going to be produced fruits of of righteousness, holiness. We will together be growing in holiness. And one of those fruits is the fruit of repentance. And so we're going to see as a collective body the fruit of repentance. This is a common occurrence amongst the church culture. Well, then the question is posed, what happens in the event that you have members of the body or a member of the body who persists in unrepentant sin? The church that Jesus formed is then to care for them by calling them to repentance, going after them, just one of them. If a person sins against you, tell him his sin between you and him alone. And if he repents, you've gained your brother, Jesus says to his disciples. But then, what if they persist in unrepentant sin? You take two or three more, and then eventually tell the whole church, and and throughout all of this, they persist in unrepentant sin. Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, they're proving to you that there is no indwelling Holy Spirit, and so you cut them loose from membership. And why do you do that? Because the membership of the church body, the local church, should reflect membership in Christ's body. And so if they persist in unrepentant sin, they present to you that 
there is no evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, then last week we saw that the Great Commission is not merely a commission that's intended for you to fulfill by yourself. Jesus is here in the Great Commission commanding His church, every single one of us, to go out. It's a commission to everyone together to be on the same page. But also, the commission is to bring people in, hence the baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're to bring them in and protect them, teach them, protect them from unrepentant sin by calling them to repentance continually. It's the making of disciples in this passage is spelled out in really two ways. One we covered last week, next we'll be covering this week. Baptizing and teaching, which are the most important functions that we perform as a church body together. There's teaching that goes on here in the cultivating of discipleship. There's baptism that goes on here in the cultivating of discipleship. It's not meant to be applied merely to you as an individual, but to us together as a church body. So Jesus' commission here is for His disciples to establish a church body that will both share the gospel and bring saved sinners into the fellowship of the church body. And Jesus, at the end of this passage, promises something that's significant to the church. He promises His ongoing presence with them as they participate in this church's mission that He's calling them to. So this week we're going to focus a lot on the application of the Great Commission to you as individuals. How is it that I fulfill the Great Commission, and how is it that we as a church body actually become a Great Commission church. With that, let's read Matthew 28, 16-20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we have read your word, that we would now begin to understand it. Would you open our minds, eyes, ears, and heart, that we might see what your word says, that we might hear it with our ears as it's preached to us. Would you give us hearts that desire to obey what is in your word. Will you make us a church that seeks with everything it has to fulfill this commission you've given to us? We know that we can only do this by your Spirit's help, so we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. The main aspect of the text that I want to hone in on this morning are these ten words here in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is ten words. Don't worry. You don't have to count them. I counted them for you. It's ten words. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And we know that this is the second part of making disciples. The first part of making disciples we saw last week, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives this main command, this commission, make disciples. And then he gives two ways in which that happens. The first being baptizing, the second being teaching. 
So it bears repeating that Jesus is speaking now to his 11 disciples, that he's gathered to him on this mountain, and they've been following him pretty much since the beginning of his ministry, some three and a half years ago. And it's these 11 that he is about to leave. And when he does, they're going to be tasked with establishing the church. It's a commission that seems daunting when you first look at it. They'll be planting churches. They barely understand what Jesus has just done. Some of them are doubting. And yet, these are the ones that he's tasked with going out and planting churches. They'll not only be planting churches, but then as we see in the ministry of Paul, in particular, that as they go and plant these churches, they'll be appointing elders in every church on the way. So they're going to be tasked with handing this down, and that church then taking up the mantle. So they'll be pastoring the first church for a while. They're in Jerusalem as the people give themselves to the teaching of these eleven This is why the question is often asked when it comes to the Great Commission by some. Well, if Jesus is talking to the disciples who are going to be the ones that are pastoring the church, isn't he really intending the Great Commission to be done by these 11 elders, essentially? Isn't that the, aren't those the ones that are supposed to be the main impetus for going out and, and, and actually accomplishing the Great Commission? After all, this, the logic goes, I'm never going to step into the baptistry to dunk someone. I mean, isn't it the elder's job to get in the baptistry and dunk the person under the water? I don't think I'll ever do that. And how many of you, when you're reading the Great Commission... You see that little line that says, teaching them to observe, and you think to yourself, I'm having a little panic attack now, because in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not sure that I'm really ready to teach someone the Bible. I'm still learning it myself, and I I think it's a, isn't it the elder's job to stand up there in front of the congregation and teach the congregation from the Bible? And so maybe the Great Commission is really about the apostles that he's talking to and then the elders that they're going to appoint in the churches and put over these positions to carry out the Great Commission for the church, right? But but I want you to... There's a whole bunch of responses to this, and I'm only going to get to one. I want you to think for just a second. Baptism is not an act done by me. Are you sure I physically get in the water? And I dunk someone under the water. So that technical, you know, submerging someone in the water is done by me, sure. But baptism is a church's act altogether. Before someone is baptized in this church, I, I personally interview them. They fill out a interview request form where they give their testimony. They write it all down. And when I go into the interview process, I take that written testimony and then we talk about it and other things that have come up in their life of faith. And then as I take all that I've learned from the interview and all that I have there in a written testimony, I bring that before a church body that is gathered at a members meeting and I read all the things that they wrote in their testimony. To which often, or sometimes, there are questions about something that they wrote, some ambiguity, which I can then clarify 
by explaining what I learned in the membership interview. And then after all of that's done, the church body of members that's gathered there together will vote as to whether or not they think the testimony that is presented is authentic. And if that sounds like an authentic confession of faith, that this person really does believe, then they vote to baptize that individual. And I am simply the one that carries that out. So when a person is baptized, it's not merely the pastor who baptizes. It's the whole church who's really in the baptistry. I'm just the representative that's carrying it out. So also, then, when it comes to teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, teaching them to observe just means teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. All, um, that, that's not just the job done by the elder or elders of the church. Because the first thing that we have to understand about teaching someone to obey is that teaching to obey is more than an academic exercise. Teaching to obey is more than an academic exercise. Now, I want you to look closely at what Jesus says there in verse 20 and just kind of zoom in on that phrase and sit on it for a second. Imagine how this verse would be different if Jesus had said, teaching them all that I have commanded you. We just move the to obey or to observe, just remove that and just see what it, how it would feel different if he said, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Wouldn't that give it a totally different connotation to the Great Commission? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. And certainly he could have said that. We know what teaching someone the facts really is. That, that's vocabulary that they're familiar with. Surely he could have said that if that's what he meant. And if that was what he said, teaching them all that I have commanded you, then certainly the connotation to the Great Commission would be a lot different. In fact, we would probably transfer a lot of the responsibility to the elder who's going to be in charge of teaching for that day. They would have the responsibility of teaching. They're standing up in front of the congregation. And so the thrust of the Great Commission would be on an academic level. Teach them what he's commanded us. Just tell it to them. And so we're simply conveying then what Jesus taught us. But that's not what he says. He says instead, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so that changes the point of the Great Commission from something that's merely meant to convey information to something that is instructed and demonstrated. You understand, Jesus is not commissioning his church to be merely informational. He's instructing His church to be transformational. Not informational, transformational. If we're not careful, we can think of the Great Commission as that spiel that the flight attendant gives before takeoff. You know where she's, he or she stands in the aisle and they move their arms a lot. They do this, and they do this, and they make sure everybody knows, and they hold up little examples, and they teach... Remember, in the event of an unexpected and untimely death, Jesus is your soul's flotation device. Cling hard to Him, and you will be saved. In which case it would make sense, then, the elder to stand up there 
and to carry out all the responsibility. You're in front of the church, you're doing the teaching, and the same reason it it's, makes sense for the flight attendant to get up there and instruct. But because we're teaching them to observe or obey all that He has commanded us, the job of making a disciple is transformational more than merely informational. We homeschool our kids. And I say we, but I recognize that Andrea does the lion's share of the instruction on a daily basis. Make no mistake about it. But the reason that I say we is because homeschooling our kids is something that we do every moment of the day, really. In fact, this is what generates from our kids the most amount of eye rolls when we turn baking cookies into an understanding of how fractions work, right? It's half a cup of this. It's a teaspoon of that or half a teaspoon or whatever it is. It gets the biggest eye rolls and they say to us, I don't want to do school. I want to make cookies. I don't want to do school. But we're not trying to create Jeopardy winners. You could do that, right? You could do that in school. You could just convey information. You could force them to memorize it, and they would win every Jeopardy contest out there. But they wouldn't be educated. What we're trying to create is lifelong learners. We're trying to, people, to create people who, who, who can't just merely pass a test, but who have a thirst for knowledge, and they know how to teach themselves. So that in the years to come, when we're not there, they know how to learn new subjects, they know how to learn how to take everything in and actually convey that to someone else. You can certainly teach them the facts of long division. But if you want to teach them to be mathematicians, you have to spend time with hands-on guidance so that they master the fundamental principles of this, and that's more than merely just conveying information. Well, in a similar way, the teaching involved in making disciples is not merely about the conveyance of information. We certainly do need to convey information. We want to spend time teaching how to learn these things and understand what's written in the Word. But the people who have been shaped by the Word, who have received the teaching, who have themselves become disciples, and who have grown and matured as disciples, who have been shaped by the Word of God, also have to come alongside the young and actually help them develop a sense of obedience so that they become lifelong disciples. You have to come alongside them and take their hand and show them how to obey what's happening. You don't want mere academics. You want Christians who have their minds renewed by the Word so that they see every aspect of their lives as an opportunity to either obey or reject Christ. That is not evident to the new Christian. How is eating an opportunity for me to obey Christ or reject Christ? Well, certainly you could pursue gluttony. You could also receive the food that is on your plate with a heart that is not thankful. But alternatively, you could see the food on your plate as being provided by the very hand of God. You could receive it with joy and thanksgiving, understanding that He gave you that food to satisfy your hunger, but He didn't have to make it taste good. The salt and the flavor in food is a blessing of God. 
Amen? Amen. Speaking of next week, potluck. Well-seasoned, prepared, good food. Um, but I digress. So we have to understand something else about teaching, too, if that's the case. So that teaching, like baptizing, involves the whole church. It involves every single one of us. And so in order to fo- focus more on tra- the transformational aspect of the Great Commission, then, the whole church, not just the teachers of the church, have to actually be intimately involved. I want you to think about just for a second the gospel message that we're presenting to the rest of the world. Just think about the nuts and bolts of the gospel for just a second. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins, that He rose again, that He is eternally triumphant over his enemies so that we who believe in him for for those of us who believe in him there is therefore now no condemnation for us but everlasting joy then we are saying that we believe that we who believe in him are a new creation meaning that when when we believe that is a result of the holy spirit living within us. God's own Spirit takes up residence within us and begins to produce in and through us the fruit of righteousness. Yes? It's the gospel. We, we believe the God. That's the gospel that we preach to other people. Now, we still sin, but what the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us means is that even though we sin, we come together... We hold each other accountable. We exhort each other towards righteousness. We correct one another in our sin. And we forgive one another. And we believe that God cleanses us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins because He's faithful and just. So if that's the gospel that we're preaching, what do you think people expect to see when they walk in here? Do they expect to see... what? What happens if the evangelist goes out there and says, here is the gospel, the gospel of radical transformation? You understand, that's the gospel we're preaching. We're not preaching a gospel of information. I mean, it has news in it. It is good news after all. But all news that's worth its salt is meant to transform you. Even if the news comes on and says, hey, the meeting's been moved from this place to that place, that's still meant to transform you so that you don't go to the other place. You go to the new place, right? All news that's worth its salt is meant to transform you in some way. So we are conveying informational news, but it's meant to transform us. So if the evangelist goes out there and says, here's the good news of Jesus, it is transformational. And then they come in here to a room full of people who are supposed to be transformed by it, And if they see backbiting and slander and gossip and a fist fight, what do they conclude about this gospel that the evangelist has told them about? They conclude that it's false. So then evangelizing and discipleship is not something that merely one person can do. It is an entire church's effort. Because the gospel that's being preached by the evangelist 
is meant to be felt inside the room. It's got to be true. And it's proven in the life of its members. The proof is in the pudding. Now this is important for us because I think as we think about making disciples, our eyes are probably drawn to this section here, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And your first reaction might be one of trepidation. You might get the picture in your mind of, okay, if I'm going to make disciples, I want to obey. I want to listen to the Great Commission. I want to obey what Jesus says. So I've got this young person here. Maybe it's my child. Maybe it's a college student. Maybe it's a grown adult who's just immature in faith. And you're sitting down and you're going, okay, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I don't know if I'm ready for this, but go ahead and open your Bible. Here's your legal pad. Get ready to take notes from me. And you stand up and you, you give them the ins and outs of Scripture as best you understand it. And you look at that and you think, me do that? There's no way I feel like I am equipped to do that. But we certainly need to help young Christians know how to read the Bible. There's no question about that. We understand that that is a prerogative. We need to sit down with people who are untrained in reading Scripture and teach them how to read the Bible. There's absolutely no question about that. But we're also wanting to communicate to the young Christian that we're all disciples. We're all growing in understanding what the Word is actually communicating. That we study the Bible not merely as an academic exercise. We study the Bible in order to become more like Christ. And we see that in His Word, that those who read the Word and understand it and apply it will become more and more like Christ. We're interested in transformation, not merely information. So what we want to communicate to those young and immature in faith that we're teaching how to read the Bible is not, here, I have all the information. Let me just dump this down on you so that you can learn and be like me. That makes them a disciple of you. You want to teach them that the Bible is about transformation. I want to become more like Christ. What do you see here? Does that edify you? Teach them what repentance is. Teach them what confession of sin is. Teach them what praise and honor and glory to Christ is for the truths that He's revealed to you in His Scripture. We want to teach them to become more like Christ, not more like us. But what teaching them to obey all that He has commanded them really means more than anything is that you have to lean hard into your church. You have to lean hard into the body of Christ around you. And what you're trying to teach them is to do the same thing. I want to take them by the hand and help them also lean hard against their brothers and sisters in faith. How? By being incorporated into the church. And what happens when they do that? Well, well they start to see that it's not merely your life that has been transformed by the Scriptures. It's not merely the evangelist's life who's been the one that's been transformed. They also see a group of brothers and sisters who have also radically been transformed by the Spirit of God. They start to see the fruit that the Spirit produces. They see other immature young believers. They see some immature old believers. They see some immature young believers. They see some mature young believers. 
They see everybody growing at different rates, but all striving towards the same purpose. They're not seeing perfection. Quite the opposite. They're seeing a group of people, no matter how immature or mature, who are leaning hard on Christ and repenting of sin, being held accountable, being corrected, being trained in righteousness, being taught, being matured, being grown and cultivated inside the church. They see the poor being ministered to. They see the rich humbling themselves. They see a diverse group of people who have a common ground in the gospel. But even more than that, they're being introduced to the many different ways we're called to obey based on the various gifting that they see represented inside the body. Paul says in Romans 12, starting in verse 6, "...having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness." So in the church body as a whole... The disciple is not only baptized, but also taught to obey all that he has commanded us. Has he commanded generosity? Yes. Has he commanded cheerfulness? Yes. But, he's, but we're also seeing that there are certain people that are gifted in that regard. That they're seeing them use their gifts. It's not merely through the words that are spoken from the pulpit, or even by the words that are spoken by you around your dinner table with that disciple that you're trying to teach and train. But it's also as they see the obedience to Jesus demonstrated throughout the body in various capacities. No one person has all the gifting. I am outpaced in this congregation by some of your generosity. I have learned generosity by being in a church with generous people. I have learned boldness by growing up under a man who was bold in the church. It's the church as a whole that teaches. How will the disciple learn generosity except by being near generous people in the body? How will a disciple learn the Word except by being near the teachers and hearing them teach? How will the disciple learn hospitality except by being near the hospitable people in the body? Evangelism is crucial to the Great Commission. Don't hear me say evangelism is not important or that evangelism shouldn't be done by you. I'm not saying that at all, quite the opposite. I'm saying that the Great Commission should not be interpreted as an arrow, but a loop. That it's a constant going out and coming back in. A constant going out and coming back in. It never stops. As long as you're here and alive, upright and taking nourishment and breathing, it is a loop for you. Constantly going out and coming back in. And bringing people into the body. Telling the lost the good news of Jesus Christ is something you're all equipped for if, in fact, you actually have been changed by that news. If somebody moves the school board meeting from one location to another, are you now equipped to tell that news to someone else? Do you know it? In the same way, if you've come to believe the gospel, you are equipped to tell someone about it. 
But you understand that evangelism is only the tip of the iceberg of the Great Commission. It's much deeper than that. Making disciples involves an entire church body. It involves the church body striving toward being a healthy church. As a local church, we then are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has left and he has put us here behind enemy lines to be an outpost, a representative, an emissary of the kingdom of heaven. And what people should see as they come in are a group of people transformed radically by the Spirit of God into representing what it looks like in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying over this congregation. That's what we want people to see when they come in. Seeking to represent Christ to the lost world around us. So fulfilling the Great Commission is really about the whole church striving toward health. And it's a place inside the church body where the language of heaven is routinely spoken, it's understood by the people who have been transformed by it, and it's routinely lived out, you understand. I want you to imagine with me just real quick. You'll bear with me for just a second. Just imagine this setting. Imagine that you are a stranger... You're left in a foreign land around a people who do not speak your language. People from your homeland are not welcome here. They'll be killed on sight. And so, you have over time adapted yourself as best as possible. You've not only learned to speak the language, but you have a job, you have a car, you have a small little apartment, you have various odds and ends that the rest of the people in the culture also have, so that you don't stick out like a sore thumb. In fact, you've been in this place for so long that you've learned to speak its language. And, and, and you sound so convincing that most people that hear you in this land have no idea that you're a foreigner, because you've learned to speak the language with a convincing accent. It was difficult for you at first, but, one, one, but over time, you, you're, you've grown accustomed to living in this world. Most of the time, the natives even assume that you grew up here. But you live alone, which means you wake up alone, you go to work alone, you speak to your co-workers and acquaintances in that new language that you've grown accustomed to, that try as you might, still feels very unnatural to you. You've fooled everybody else. They, they think you're from there. But deep down inside, it's not the language that you grew up speaking, and so it feels unnatural to you. And for years, you've longed to meet someone that speaks English. You just want to talk to them about who cares what. I hate the New York Yankees, but... Be glad to talk with them about something that just is familiar in English. And so you just want to feel those syllables roll off your tongue as only your heart language, your native language, can really do. You know what I'm talking about? You want to hear those syllables click together in just the right way. It just feels right. And yet day after day, week after week, year after year, all the sounds you hear on a daily basis just sound foreign to you. But then just imagine, you're walking home from work. 
It's really cold outside. In fact, it's way colder than you thought it was going to be. And so you tried to take a shortcut through this densely wooded area to try to get home, maybe just a little bit faster. And then you hear it. There's a sound in the middle of the woods. And, and you're not quite sure. You heard what you thought you heard. Maybe you're just hallucinating. But you tune your ear in and you hear, if everybody had an ocean across the USA, then everybody'd be surfing like California. And you're like, wait a minute. Where am I? I'm in the middle of the woods. Why am I hearing the Beach Boys in that falsetto that only they can do? Impossibly high. How is it that I'm actually hearing that? And so you shake your head and you, you go just a little bit closer and it gets louder and louder. And so many questions are flooding your mind. And as you move closer to the source, you're hiding in the woods and you look into this small little clearing and you see these five or ten people gathered around a tiny little campfire in the middle of this clearing in an otherwise dense forest and the people are, have this radio, and they're singing, and they're talking to each other in, in, in your native tongue. They're sharing stories, and you, you're remembering. Your mind is taken back to when you were a kid. You remember something about this. And so you can't take it anymore. You have to know who these people are and what they're doing. And so you come out, and you make yourself known. And then as you approach the group, there's a look of panic that floods their faces. They think they've been caught by you. And so they switch to the local tongue and they start speaking in it just as well as you can. And you respond in English. I mean you no harm. Are you from America? And a sense of relief comes to their faces as well. And they start to quiz you just to make sure you're not really a spy. Where are you from? What street did you live on? What's your favorite brand of ice cream? And so naturally you say Bluebell. Don't give me Mayfield. Bluebell. It's the ice cream of heaven. Anyway. So you know and they know the stuff that you're responding with can't possibly be known or made up by a foreigner. Evidently you passed the test and so they welcome you into the group. And they take turns introducing themselves, one from Boston, another from Dallas, another from Los Angeles. And around the circle they go, and town after town are either ones you've dreamed of going to or ones you've personally visited yourself. See, you found fellow travelers in this faraway land that you didn't know were here. Or perhaps they're captives. Either way, they're like you. They're caught in this faraway country. And likewise, they thought they were alone until they found each other. What's more is they meet in this location every week in the remotest, remotest areas they can. And the goal is simple. They just want to remind each other of the language of home. Because they miss it. They want to sing songs that remind them of all the things they grew up with. Baseball, hot dogs, and the 4th of July. When you sit down with them, one of them hands you this rectangular package. It's got an orange sleeve and a cardboard wrapper inside. A little tray. You slide it out. 
And inside are two big, beautiful Reese's peanut butter cups. And you take that peanut butter cup and you put it in your mouth and the fake peanut butter on the inside just takes you back to remember the lakes of Minnesota and the hills of Tennessee. They even eat food that reminds them of home. Brothers and sisters, the core of the message of the Great Commission is for the church to represent the kingdom of heaven. And as we gather together on a Sunday by Sunday basis, speak the language of heaven. When you evangelize as you go out, you're speaking the language of heaven. And then there are going to be people that you meet as you speak the language of heaven whose ears perk up, who have never heard this before, or you think they've never heard this before. Their eyes get wide. Their heart grows a little bit. Why is that? Because as Jesus says in John, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. And they come. That's what we experience in evangelism. And then we bring them back here. And they come into this clearing in the wood and they realize that there are other people whose lives have likewise been transformed by the gospel, who are here every single week, who are reminding themselves of the voice of heaven, the language, what it sounds like. People who have been transformed by the Spirit of God, who edify and encourage, correct, train in righteousness, step on one another's toes sometimes, but who forgive each other, who love each other, and who care for each other, who remind them week by week what the language of heaven actually sounds like. And every member of this church is bringing them some gift from heaven that they want to share with everyone else. That's what the Great Commission actually looks like. That's how we as a church, actually embody that. That what we strive toward individually is lives of holiness. Why? So that when we come together and others are here present, what they hear in you, what they see in your singing, what they hear in the prayers prayed and in the scriptures read is the language of heaven. And it sounds oddly familiar to them. And they're encouraged by it. So what does that mean for you? as you're individually seeking to fulfill the Great Commission? Well, it means evangelize the lost. Quite simply, you know what the good news of salvation is. Tell somebody about it. I don't care who it is. Is it your family member? Is it your friend? Is it a neighbor? Tell them about it. Second, be a healthy church member. So, so this is going to come across as quite a shock, I know. Groundbreaking, you've never heard this before. Come to church. You're commanded in Scripture to come. Come. If you hate it here and 
you don't feel like you can be a part of this congregation, go somewhere where you can go. I'd rather you do that than disobey Scripture. Come. That's one way you can be a healthy church member. That's one way you can fulfill the Great Commission. You realize that? Is come. Sing. When we sing, sing. You know that actually benefits someone around you? Even if it's off-key. Sing. The musicians may, but it's okay. They'll get over it. They need to learn too. Then a lot of people sing off-key. As you learn these things, as you grow, share what you're learning with other people. Bring them in. Encourage them to come. When you know someone that's not coming, tell them, come. Be a good church member. And then as you do those things, and as you participate in the life of the church, find someone who doesn't do those things and take them along with you. Guess what you're doing now? Careful. Making a disciple. And you're teaching them to observe all that he has commanded you. Hey, look how easy that was. Is it hard? It's not hard. You're leaning in hard to the church, and you're showing them. You see that guy over there? He's really generous. You should really get to know him. You see that lady over there? She's so hospitable. You've already been introduced to her 14 times. See that person back there? They will pray for you. Whatever you have, they will pray for you. Just tell them. As they begin to lean hard into the church like you are, they start to grow as a disciple. Look at that. It was accomplished by all of us together. And here's what that means for us as a church body. Preaching and teaching really does matter in the church. It does. It is the, the core of what we do. You come here, you're going to be taught. That's what we're, we're going to do. We're going to teach. We're going to preach. Because the Bible actually tells us that the teaching of the Word of God is what trains and equips people for the, for the work of men. All the good works are trained and equipped and taught and given to someone by the teaching and preaching. But it's not the only gift that matters. It is a gift to the church, but it's not the only gift that matters. Gifts of hospitality, they matter too. Gifts of generosity, it matters too. All of those gifts matter. You don't need a position to have a reason to use your gift. You don't need a title to use your gift. Just use it. You don't need someone to invite you to be hospitable. That's not very hospitable. Just go be hospitable. Get to know people. Second, as a church body, our fidelity to the Word of God actually matters. Why? Because we want the evangelist's promise when they're on the doorstep of a non-Christian to be found to be true. And the only way that can be found true is if the Word of God is strictly adhered to. That when we confront someone on sin, we go to the grounding of that sin in the Scriptures. When we encourage someone, we do so on the basis of the Scriptures. When we come together and sing off-key, we do so because the Scriptures tell us to sing. So for us, fidelity to the Word of God matters. So when it comes to the Great Commission, again, it's not an arrow saying, go and do this, 
It's a loop. Go. But come back. And go again. And come back. Lean hard into the church body. It's fulfilled by all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you simply encourage us, give us boldness, that as we go and lean hard into our church, that what we would find here is that the promise of the evangelist be found true inside the church body. The promise of transformation out there be found true in here. Would you encourage us with your word? Correct us. Gift us with the ability to go. We pray that your word would go with us, go before us, be underneath us, undergird us, correct us, transform us, that we would truly be in the business of transformation and not merely information because we know that is your heart. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.